Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. Can you think of any words that are more offensive to a culture that prides itself on tolerance and exclusivity or inclusivity than these words of our Lord Jesus Christ? Enter by the narrow gate. That's the flow of our culture, isn't it? Let's try to make sure everybody's included. You can't leave anybody out ever. And I'm so often reminded of this cultural worldview whenever I'm driving or walking in a parking lot somewhere and I come across one of those coexist bumper stickers. You guys ever seen these? These coexist bumper stickers? They're prominently placed on the backside of a car. And every time I see one, without fail, the sight of that sticker gets my mind racing with a mixture of irritation at the lie that is being promoted by the sticker and a sadness of the soul, a sadness that a soul is caught up in such a lie, caught up in the trap of such a worldview. You see, if you've never seen this bumper sticker before, somebody at some point thought they were being really, really creative. They came up with this idea of putting the word coexist on a bumper sticker and incorporating into that word a number of identifiable symbols that we can see in the world. Identifiable religious symbols or identifiable worldview symbols. You see, in the word coexist, what they do is they take every letter and they change it or they use that letter to represent some emblem that most of us know on site. And depending on which bumper sticker you actually see, uh, depending on which iteration of the sticker you see, it usually goes something like this. The C is uh, represented by the crescent moon of Islam. And then the O is the peace sign, which is the mark of pacifism. The lowercase e, so it'll be a c and then an o, then a dash, and then a lowercase e. And depending on which one you see, the e will either have the little, uh, the little cross coming out the bottom and the little arrow coming out the top that represent the uh, gay and transgender rights movement, or you will see one that has uh, a little mc squared on the bottom, right? Representing... Uh, uh, which is shorthand for Einstein's theory of special relativity, which, which pushes forward the idea of the scientific enterprise or the scientific method. The next letter, the X, is represented by the Star of David, the symbol for Israel as shown on their national flag, and it's also the sign of Judaism. The I will have a little pentagram as the dot on the top of the eye, and that incorporates paganism. It's pagan symbolism, and it represents a wide variety of modern and ancient pagan practice, including such things as Wiccan witchcraft and the modern-day efforts to revive the old Norse and Greek mythologies. The S is made up by the Taoist yin-yang symbol. You know that symbol, the black and the white, and that is representative of Eastern religions in general. And then finally, at the end, there's a lowercase t, and that lowercase t is representative of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the most common version of the coexist motif, but there are a number of offshoots to it as well. Some, for some, the, if the E refers to science, if you see the little MC squared, they'll splash a rainbow across all of the letters in kind of an effort to call on all religions to celebrate the sexual perversions of our culture, while others will add the symbols for Hinduism or Sikhism or atheism or a host of other missing isms to the mix. And if you look online, I was kind of looking at this idea online, you'll notice too that a number of other places have co-opted this idea. A number of groups have spoofed this, co, this uh, coexist. I noticed a few of them, and some of them are quite funny, actually. I noted that uh, European soccer leagues, for example, where tensions run high and passions are sky high, some have created their own coexist sticker because people in these, these really high-tension areas, they tend to fight each other over their soccer teams, and so they've got the team logos set up as coexist so that, you know, in an effort to get all these people to get along with each other. 
There are fans of the Marvel comic universe and the DC comic universe who put a coexist as in like, can't we just get them all together? And each one of the um, letters represents a, a superhero's, um, you know, hammer or, or letter. But come on, I mean, seriously, we don't even have to discuss this because if we're talking superheroes, everybody knows that Superman's the best. There are coexist banners where governmental systems make up the letters of the words. There are co computer operating systems where, where they make up the letters of the words and a host of other competing ideas where this idea, this, this concept is used. And then there are a whole host of rebuttal ideas to the coexist movement, the most witty of which in my mind was this. I've, I came across this. Somebody wrote on their bumper sticker, I'm trying to coexist. But I find it difficult when you drive 95 kilometers per hour in the left-hand lane. My jokes never land. I tell you, they never land. But seriously, the basic idea being suggested by all of these coexist bumper stickers is that everyone ought to get along because, after all, don't we all end up in the same place when all is said and done? Don't all roads lead to the one true God? Don't all lifestyle choices, belief systems, and practices benefit us if they work for the individual that is holding to them? Isn't the road to heaven, if there is such a thing, broad enough that everyone, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they live, Get there. God, is God really that exclusive that he would seriously mean enter by the narrow gate? That's a little bit exclusive, isn't it? Isn't God all love? Isn't God all accepting? Isn't he all inclusive? Isn't he tolerant or doesn't he tolerate everybody's lifestyle decisions? If there really is a heaven... Won't we all be there seeing as God would never exclude anyone, except maybe perhaps for some really bad people, as his primary goal is to ensure that I'm happy? Shouldn't we all just coexist because the point of religion, the point of worldviews in general, is really simply to help us be kind to one another and nice to each other? So shouldn't we simply follow whatever we want to follow and try to be tolerant and inclusive, try to ensure that we're not offending people with claims of their beliefs being wrong? Shouldn't we simply do what all religions tell us to do and don't avoid doing to others what we wouldn't want them doing to us? Isn't that, isn't that what we should be doing? Isn't it all the same thing? Aren't we all on this road together? Aren't we all on this journey of life walking this road together, shouldn't we just simply be taking it easy, relaxing, and walking with other people? The problem, there's a couple of problems. First, the first problem is um, the people that hold to this kind of idea usually don't note the hypocrisy of their own belief, right? It's arrogant for anyone to claim that any belief system is exclusively true, but let me tell you why my belief system is exclusively true. All right? So there's the hypocrisy in the belief, but then you've also got the death blow to this belief, which is God's Word. God's Word deals an absolute strike to the heart of such an idea that we coexist with everyone and that everyone gets to the same place in the end. Over and over again, as you read God's Word, you will see with absolute clarity the fact that the Lord in various ways and through various people calls on all people all over the world to choose between one of two paths. There are only two paths, only two roads. The road or the path that leads to life or the road and the path that leads to destruction. And you will see this if you read scripture and you're doing your Bible reading plans and you pay attention for it, you will see this consistently held forth throughout the Bible. For, here's a few examples, just a, a sampling. Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord says this to the people of Israel, starting in verse 15. He said, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Did you notice it? Did you notice there is only life and death, blessing and curse offered to the people of Israel? And it hasn't changed There is life and death, blessing and curse offered to us this day as well. And that life included such things as are still commanded in the New Testament. To love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to obey everything He has commanded us. And to avoid and turn away from the stench of idolatry and service to anyone or anything or any worldview other than Him. And by choosing the Lord, you choose life. And Joshua, the leader of the people of Israel, also exhorted them in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua, saying this, Therefore, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods gods that your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the, gods of your, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Once again, the choice is clear. You choose to either serve the Lord, is your house going to serve the Lord, or will you choose to serve anyone or anything else which is the path and the way of death? To serve or to worship anything or anyone other than God is to reject wholesale the Lord. There is no, you can't have your feet on both paths. You can't have your toes stepping in both roads. You are either on one road or you are on the other road. You've either entered in by the narrow gate and are traveling on the narrow path or you are on the broad road, walking on the broad path. And Joshua here looked at the people of Israel and said said to them, it is time for you to choose. It's time for you to choose who you will serve either the gods that your fathers served in the old land back in Egypt or the gods of the land that you live in now, the old Canaanite gods that were worshipped here before you got here. Choosing to submit to either the old gods of Egypt or the gods of Canaan is a rejection, a complete rejection of Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. There are only two roads, serving the Lord which leads to life, or serving anyone or anything else which leads to destruction. And when the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, agreed to send the prophets of Baal against Elijah in a contest to see who is God, you remember that in 1 Kings 17, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel to have them come and to watch this competition. He sent to all of the prophets of Baal to come and fight against Elijah to see which God was God, Baal or Yahweh. And Elijah, looking at the people, spoke up and said this in 1 Kings 18.21, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow him. There's only two choices, people. Yahweh or any other God. 
service to the Lord, according to Elijah, according to Joshua, according to Moses, is an exclusive decision. To serve him means we serve him alone. We leave everyone and everything else behind. There is no worshiping anyone or anything else. There is no room to hedge your bets. There is no room to straddle any fences. Or, as Elijah put it, to limp between two opinions. You and I must choose whom we will serve. You must choose who you are going to serve. And know this, avoiding the choice, that's a choice. Avoiding the choice settles you on the broad road that leads to your destruction. We've also got the Psalms. In Psalm chapter or Psalm 1, it sets the stage for all of the other Psalms. But it makes the principle clear as well. There is a way of righteousness and there is a way of the wicked. There is no middle ground. Righteousness or wickedness are before each and every one of us. And there we read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see again, right? There is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There is no middle ground. You are either one or the other. You are righteous, you are wicked, or you are wicked. You are on the road to life or you are on the road to death. You are on the narrow road or you are on the broad road. So which one is it for you? There are only two ways. Each one leads to a different end. The righteous prosper. The righteous live in the congregation of the righteous as they worship and exalt the Lord while the wicked and their ways end in their ultimate perishing and destruction. And you recall, back in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord set before Israel life and death. They chose, for the most part, death. And in Jeremiah 30, as a result of uh, Jeremiah 21, the result of their choosing death came to pass in the life of Israel. As the Lord brought, raised up and brought against Israel the Babylonians. The Babylonians came against that rebellious, stubborn, and disobedient people, Israel, And the Lord spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the prophet in whose lifetime the curses of the covenant came to pass in the life of Israel. And the Lord spoke through Jeremiah saying this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you, or the Babylonians who are besieging you, shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire." See, the people to whom God gave the decision of life and death, they chose death. And now during the life and the ministry of Jeremiah, the promised result, disaster, ruin, calamity, and destruction came upon them as King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian forces surrounded and ultimately sacked Jerusalem. And now know this, you need to know something. There's a lot of discussions, a lot of debates about how the Lord could do certain things in the Old Testament and how could people get uh, sacked and how could cities go down and how could the Lord be responsible for all this. These are all pictures of historical events brought to pass by the Lord himself that are meant to bring to your mind this fact that none of them compare in any way to the destruction, the ruin, and the calamity that await you if you rebel against and refuse to serve the Lord.
Everyone who chooses death, the sacking of Jerusalem will look like a, like a game in comparison. All the prophetic warnings and all the historical events, while devastating and terrible, are as light as a feather when compared to the wrath, the catastrophic affliction that will come upon all who choose the way of death and who die on that road. All who die without having come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All who refuse the offer of the mercy and grace of God held out to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All who refuse the forgiveness of Jesus in favor of their sin. All who refuse to choose life are in for catastrophic ruin. So the cultural and worldly notion of coexistence is demolished in the light of such clear biblical statements like what we just read and like what we read in Philippians 2. There we read this. God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That sounds pretty exclusive. And the lip, from the lips of Jesus himself, we read this in John 14, 6. You all know it. One of the most famous verses in the Gospel of John. Jesus declared, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the early church had a manual for their worship. It was called the Didache. And uh, it contained this, um, this recognition that in the evangelistic work of the church, they ought to continue holding out this choice between life and death to everyone they evangelized to. And they wrote this in the uh, this same truth in their early church manual saying, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. And so you see, there is a sustained, unrelenting, and persistent call shouting out to each and every one of us on every page of Scripture that you must either choose the road that leads to life, and one chooses this road as they believe, truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God come to us in the flesh, that he died in your place, taking on himself, bearing in himself the penalty of the Father's righteous wrath, his furious wrath in him for your sin. He dealt with all of your sin there on that cross. And then Jesus, who lived a perfect life, then applies to you his very own perfection, his very own righteousness. It's credited to your account so that you are righteous in the sight of God. But you can only access this by the grace of God through faith in Christ as God holds out the offer of that mercy and grace to you. If you don't, if you don't accept this offer that the Lord gives to you, you are walking the broad road. You are unforgiven at this very moment and your end will be destruction. However, if you do choose life and you do come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you are made righteous, and your end is life. The belief, if it's true will then necessarily reveal itself as you serve Jesus, as you obey him with your life, as you produce fruit consistent with that profession, as we'll see in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't choose the road, if you don't choose the narrow road, you remain and are at this moment traveling the wide road that ends in your destruction. So if you've heard nothing here so far, again, I tell you there are only two options. Life and death. And Scripture reminds us of this truth over and over and over again. So choose this day. Either life by grace through faith in Christ or death as you remain in your sin and rebellion against Him. Life and death are the only two eternal realities that await you. And so where will you spend your eternal future after you have breathed your last breath on earth? Where? 
the call goes out to you this morning. And as we've worked through these last sections, as we work through these last sections of the Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks, you're going to notice that Jesus reiterates this only two options idea over and over and over till the end of the sermon. As you will see, he will speak to two gates, two ways, two types of trees, those that bear good fruit and those that bear fat, bad fruit, two professions, one real and one false, and two types of builders, one wise and one foolish, every time reminding us that one is the way of life and one is the way of destruction. You see, up to this point in the sermon, Jesus has been speaking to and exhorting the people that have been listening to hear and follow the virtues or to express the characteristics that are present in the true kingdom citizen, to believe and therefore reflect these virtues. The true believer will understand their poverty of spirit. The true believer will mourn over their sin. The true believer will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And after revealing all of these characteristics, Jesus now turns to a new section kind of in the sermon and begins urging people to respond to everything he's just said. Calling upon everyone listening to recognize the contrast to recognize that there is one road to life and one road to death. And he urges them in this section to choose to enter in by the gate that leads on the narrow path to life. Because whatever choice leads you somewhere. Narrow gate, the good tree bearing good fruit, the true profession of faith, the wise builder, all of these lead to life and reveal in the here and now that you already possess life. While the wide gate, the diseased tree that bears diseased fruit, the false profession of faith, and the foolish builder all end up being destroyed. Each and every one of us here this morning, in person or watching online, falls into one of these two groups, wise or foolish, healthy or diseased, true or false profession, on the wide gate, or on the, on the wide road, or on the narrow road. And which is it for you? What road are you walking? Do you love and trust and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and life? Is the profession that you have declared that you love Jesus actually issuing in the fruit of a changed life? As you grow in obedience to him, as you build your life upon the solid foundation of his word. See, this is the narrow road. All other roads, far from coexisting and leading to the same place, actually lead to your demise, your complete and total and utter ruin. Now, this is not a popular truth, is it? We live in a world that despises such claims to exclusivity. We live in a world that despises intolerance to the wide road. And so the world and its leaders and its teachers and its gurus all try to create some sort of syncretistic combination between worldliness, believing what I want to believe, doing what I want to do, living how I want to live, while sprinkling a little bit of Jesus onto the, onto the mixture in order to make me feel spiritual. But let me just tell you, this is impossible. If Jesus is to be heard accurately and correctly here, such a life, such a worldview is to walk on the broad road that leads to your destruction. And know this, the broad road is the default position of humanity. The default position of humanity is to walk the broad road while convincing themselves that they are on the narrow road. And Jesus urges everyone listening on that day and on this, no, 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 that's not how it works. Enter in, enter by the narrow gate. You see, Jesus had that, up to this point revealed to the disciples what it means to walk on the narrow road. He called on everyone. He calls on everyone to respond to respond to his exhortation for righteousness, to respond to his urging of each and every one of you to go through the narrow gate and to walk the narrow road. You see that, right? If you're going to get on the narrow road, you must first enter through the narrow gate. There's a gate that leads onto the road. 
And it's only by entering through that narrow gate that you get yourself off the broad road and walk the narrow road. But know this, again, you cannot walk both roads. If this is something you are trying to do right now, to have the best of both worlds, you are on the broad road. This is an either-or proposition. And so this narrow gate that we must enter is narrow for a couple of reasons. First, it's narrow in the sense that there is only one way to get onto the road. And that one way is Jesus. That's it. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the door of the sheep, according to John chapter 10, verse 7. To enter in by the narrow gate means that we grasp the truth of the gospel, that you and I, all of us, are wicked, guilty sinners in God's sight who deserve nothing more, nothing other than his righteous wrath, who deserve nothing other than to be cast out of his sight, unworthy of the very breath you're about to draw into your lungs right now. And yet... Because the Lord is good, because the Lord is gracious, because the Lord is loving, because He is amazing and wonderful and holy, He holds out to each and every one of you the offer of salvation. He holds out to every one of you the offer of forgiveness. He holds out to you the blessing of adoption into His very own family whereby you become His son or His daughter and you can plead and come to Him and call Him your very own Father. Repentance and faith in Christ is how one enters through the gate onto the narrow road. The gate is also narrow, so it's narrow in that you can only get onto the road through the gate that is Jesus, but it's also narrow in the sense that you cannot fit your worldly baggage through it. Your beloved sins, your indulgences, your passions, and those other sins that you're clinging to, if you want to enter in by the narrow gate... You cannot until you put those things down. Jesus forgives you. You walk through the gate, but you can't take them with you. You can't take those sins with you. You cannot enter the narrow gate if you're going to hold on to the practice of sin and love for sin. Without repenting and turning from your sin, you cannot enter that gate. You cannot enter while you are clutching at and grabbing at and holding on to the sins that characterize the wide and broad road. There might be room to practice whatever you want on the broad road, but there is not that much room on the narrow one. The narrow road, the word narrow, means it's constricting, it's confined, it's too cramped for you to bring that pack with you. So you have to take the pack off, the pack being your love for sin, your desire to hold on to your sin. You have to take that pack off and leave it at the door. And are you willing to do that? And I want you to know, this is not easy. This is not going to be easy because everything is conspiring against your commitment Everything is conspiring to keep you from entering through the narrow gate to walk on the narrow road. Your very own flesh conspires against you. Your heart conspires against you. Your passions conspire against you. The enemy Satan conspires against you. The world conspires against you. Everything is opposed to the will of Christ as revealed in Scripture. Now, sure... If you really want to, you can find a number of people. If you're really committed to holding on to your sin and fooling yourself into believing that you're walking the narrow road while you're on the broad road, you can find people who will support you and who will speak in permissive tones about your sin. You will find, you can find people who talk as though you can bring a love for sin through the narrow gate. But these are liars. They are deceived and they are deceiving you. You will always be able to find someone who says, Jesus is cool, but they're not speaking about the biblical Jesus. They're not speaking about the true Jesus, but instead are speaking of their own version of Jesus that has nothing to do with Jesus as he's revealed himself in Scripture. A version of Jesus not informed by a serious reading and study of God's Word, but is instead informed by their desire to continue on the wide road. Now, I saw that this week. I don't know if you guys were watching the news this week, but um, the Roman Catholic Church just uh, recently announced that they would not bless homosexual unions. I don't know if you saw that. Um, 
And this drove the talking heads of culture into a, uh, a tailspin as the uh, secular news media grabbed a hold of it and uh, drove themselves crazy and proceeded to take it upon themselves to lecture the church about who and what God is and who and what God is like. I don't know if you heard it. There was one particular uh, talking head on the news that made sure that everyone ought to know that God is not about judgment. The only problem with that is that even the most cursory reading of Scripture uh, reveals that that's an absolute lie. God is judge. He is the perfect judge. He is the holy judge. He judges sinners. He judges all who reject him and will pronounce them guilty if they reject him. Everything you see, everything around you, everything in you is going to try to deceive you into walking the broad road while making you believe that you're on the narrow road. And Jesus made it clear, you must enter by the narrow gate. We must not be deluded by the lies. Those who would enter into life. Listen, it's always um, confused me how we got to the evangelistic techniques that we do where people will come to you and say things like, listen, if you just believe in Jesus, all your problems are just going to go away. Everything's going to get easier for you if you just come to Jesus. You know, all of, the, all of the difficulties and the addictions and the trials and the struggles that you're facing, when you come to Jesus, they're all gone. That's not the truth. The truth is that in those things, you get Jesus walking with you. They don't all go away. In fact, Coming to Christ for salvation oftentimes will make your life exponentially more difficult. Make no mistake, if you decide to come on to the narrow road, if you are walking the narrow road, if you make the choice to enter in by the narrow gate, suffering will meet you along the way. People will speak evil about you. People will mobilize, they will mobilize the forces of evil against you. You will be slandered. You will be misunderstood. And you know and I know, right? We speak of evangelism is a labor of the heart out of a heart filled with love for the world. We know that, right? We know that we bring the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world because we want to see them saved because we love our loved ones. We love the world that we live in. And we want to see people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We want to see people enter into the joy that I know, the joy that you know. And even though this is the reason for your shouting to the world, turn from your sin and repent and come to Jesus, you will be characterized as a person of hate. You will be characterized as a bigot. You will be characterized as intolerant. You will be characterized as malicious. It might even come to pass in your very own life that people in your own household desert you, that your own family deserts you, your mother, your father, your sisters, your brothers, your children abandon you and despise you as the two roads that you are traveling on have nothing in common. Friends may turn from you. It will be painful. And some of you, I know, some of you have already had to endure this pain of people despising you because you love Jesus. You might even be jailed, as was the case for early Christians and in many Christians across the world today. You might face terrible persecutions like those faced by Christians throughout the millennia of church history. In the early church, there are a number of stories of Nero using Christians as human torches to light his gardens. We hear of a number of stories of Roman, Empire, Roman emperors throwing early believers into the uh, Colosseum to the lions as crowds of people jeer and applaud the demise of the believer. You might even be burned at the stake if that comes back into popularity, as were a number of reformers over five centuries ago. Or in our own day, you might face the anger of a culture that despises Jesus and despises his followers and despises everything they stand for. You might face persecution in a myriad of ways. And listen, it's very easy to say things like, you know, we're not really persecuted and stuff. But when you read the words of Jesus in the 
uh, beginning here of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There you see um, reviling, which is angry verbal harassments, insults, and vilifications. Um, You also see physical torments, and you also see the uttering of evils, slanders, and defamations. All of these are subsumed under the idea of persecutions that come to you falsely on account of your love and service to Jesus as you walk the narrow road. If you're persecuted because you act like a, a fool, that's on you. If you're persecuted because you love Jesus and you are trying to serve him, blessed are you, rejoice that you are counted worthy for such a thing. Now, there are, to be sure, varying degrees of persecution, varying degrees of of pressure exerted upon followers of Christ all over the world, and some persecutions are much worse. But whether it's verbal harassment, smear campaigns, or physical pain, these are all possibilities. These are all even likelihoods that will arise at some point of your life if you are truly walking the narrow path. To enter the narrow gate, you see, and to walk the narrow road is a big deal, a massive decision with life-changing benefits and worldly consequence. Count the cost, because the days are gone, and you can see it happening. The days are gone when being a Christian carried some sort of cachet in our culture, isn't it? Gone are the days when civic leaders would stand in front of you with a Bible open, put their hand on it, and be sworn in to public service. Gone are the days when our country called upon the Lord. You know the Canadian coat of arms has on it C to C as a quotation of Psalm 72 verse 8, where it says, May he, may God have dominion from sea to sea. Gone are the days when we take that seriously. Our culture and society is quickly abandoning any hint of charity and goodwill towards the people of Christ. Are you willing then to walk on the narrow road? Will you cling to him? Can you walk the narrow road as the pressure increasingly mounts, as your job, as your livelihood, as your bank accounts, as your freedoms are threatened and perhaps even lost as a direct result of your profession? We have had a long period of time where the relationship between Christians, the church, and the government have been quite peaceful. But that's, the, that's abnormal in world history. It's not the normal way. And we're starting to move back into the normal experience of Christians throughout the world with ever, ever slowly and ever increasingly. I can actually see it coming in my lifetime So I'd say this, if you're on the narrow road, enjoy these days. Enjoy these days when we can gather together in a church building like this, because who knows what's going to be happening in 20 years? Who knows where we will be gathering in 20 years? We will gather, but who knows where? Who knows if we'll have to gather in fields? I remember um, having a a barbecue one time with my brother-in-law, and he brought this little barbecue, and as we were going out into the beach, it said, no barbecuing. And he brought out his barbecue anyway, and he said, uh, well, we're just going to have to go rogue, aren't we? We're going to do some rogue barbecuing. And I've always thought, like, there's going to come a time. Who knows? It might come a time in our lives when we'll have to have rogue meetings, rogue services of worship. And who knows whether laws will be enacted from this day to that that threaten you as a follower of Jesus Christ, that threaten the pastors who lead and shepherd you in God's word. Who knows? We've witnessed it before. One instance being what is called the Great Ejection of 1662. I don't know if you've ever heard the Great Ejection of 1662, but at that point in England, over 2,000 faithful Bible-preaching pastors were ejected by the government from their, from their pulpits and banned from preaching throughout England. And England to this day, four centuries later, still suffers the ramifications of this event. And we've got Ian Murray who wrote of this event saying this, Whatever we may think were the weaknesses of the Puritan pastors of that day, there could be no denying that it was their activity that led to a period in which theology was valued, when sound doctrine and fervent gospel preaching were esteemed, and when Bible reading and spiritual hunger were characteristic of large portions of the common people. 
It is equally true that after the silencing of these 2,000 pastors, we entered an age of rationalism, of coldness in the pulpit, and indifference in the pew. An age in which skepticism and worldliness went far to reducing national religion to a mere parody of New Testament Christianity. Are we a parody of New Testament Christianity? One historian described the Sunday upon which most of these pastors preached their farewell sermons before heading to the countrysides to lead rogue churches. Many times congregant and pastor in such churches paid dearly for their commitment, dying at the hands of a government who sought to kill them. And they wrote this, No Sunday in England ever resembled exactly that which fell on this day, the 17th of August, 1662. In after years, Puritan fathers and mothers related to their children the story of assembled crowds, of aisles, standing places, and stairs filled to suffocation, of people clinging to open windows like swarms of bees, of overflowing throngs in churchyards and streets, of deep silence and stifled sobs as the flock gazed on the shepherd, sorrowing most of all that they should see his face no more. These days are probably coming. Are you willing to walk the narrow road when that pressure mounts? In our own day, we are very close to passing Bill C-6. If you don't know what it is, look it up. Bill C-6 is going to criminalize, and by that we mean carry a jail sentence, for anyone who counsels people to hear and obey God's will and commands in the realm of human sexuality. When, not if, but when this is passed into law and, the people, and people ask you as a Christian for your help and your counsel in this area, will you declare to them the full counsel of God knowing very well that it might lead to a five-year prison sentence? This is narrow road living. You've got to count this cost. Stay on the narrow road, enter by the narrow gate, count the cost, knowing that in everything that happens while you endure and while you walk on this road, the end result is a life. You might endure a number of consequences as you're walking here, but the end result is life. If you want an easy life on earth, take the wide road. If you count the cost and conclude that a life of following Jesus and the end goal of life, by life I mean heaven and eternity with Jesus, is not enough for you, then stay on the wide and easy road. And know this, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter into it or enter by it are many. And the idea here in verse 13 of wide, the, this road is wide, this gate is wide, means it carries the idea of prosperity, earthly prosperity. You can prosper on this road as you live a life of ease. It's the mainstream road, and as you walk it, you walk it in the same direction as a bunch of other people with you, with very little resistance. You can get lost in the crowd, and you can live quite comfortably on the narrow road. The road is also easy, it says in verse 13, meaning it's broad, it's spacious, it's roomy. You have room to put out your arms and to, to walk with whatever saunter or gait you would like to walk. But its end is destruction. Its end is ruin. Its end is eternity in hell. Those who enter by this wide gate are many. Why? Because it's easy. And humans tend to take the path of least resistance. This wide road, it takes no self-control. It takes no fortitude. It takes no courage. It takes no strength, no striving. If you're angry and bitter with somebody, on the wide road, you can remain angry and bitter. If you're addicted to sin in the darkness of your own home, if you're addicted to sins that you love and want to hold on to, the wide road does not counsel you to get off of them. In fact, um, many on the wide road will tell you Nothing you do is sin. Just celebrate your choices and live your life. On the wide road, you do whatever you please. You live however you like. You do whatever, you, you eat whatever you want. You look at whatever appeals to you. 
And some on the wide road will claim some level of spirituality and will keep God's word insofar as that word doesn't interfere with or conflict with the more important considerations of their own life. What you want. That's the most important consideration to someone who walks on the wide road. What I want. What makes for my best and most comfortable life right now. If you claim to love Jesus while you are on the wide road, you're simply shaving off the rougher edges and crafting a cultural Jesus that demands nothing from you. You're encouraging yourself and everyone else to follow their own hearts and do what they wish while he stands off at the side clapping for you. This is the narrow road of the multitude. And while those on that road might think to pity and to harass those of us who've chosen the narrow road, it is these broad road travelers who are enslaved to sin and must heed the words of Jesus Christ who said, unless you believe that I am he, Lord, Savior, light of the world, Son of God, come to save all who believe. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. And so listen, if you are... If that's you, I urge you this morning to believe in Jesus. I mean, truly believe in Jesus. Make Jesus the centerpiece of your life. Listen, if you're playing around with your faith and you're kind of not really serious about it and you're jumping in and out and you're doing your own thing and trying to sprinkle Jesus on it, listen, it's time to stop doing that. Jump onto the narrow road. Jump with both feet. Count the cost and live for the Lord. And be aware of your final destination. It's beautiful. David in Psalm 16 said, You, Lord, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And knowing this, knowing what it means to walk the narrow road, if you choose to do so, you must do whatever you must to walk on that road and fully commit to walking it with both of your feet. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be the most difficult thing you have ever done. Most difficult thing you have ever done. But most will choose to walk the narrow and spacious road. Because the road to life is difficult. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Narrow here means strict. Straight, as in difficult, not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, but S-T-R-A-I-T. Straight, as in difficult. To walk the road requires self-denial, requires self-control, requires self-sacrifice, requires a life of obedience to the Lord no matter what it costs. The narrow road to salvation, unlike the nicely paved easy-to-walk road that leads to destruction has been carved out by Christ, the trailblazer, the pioneer, the author, the perfecter of your faith, and it's going to be bumpy and it's going to be difficult. It's like the road that leads into Hamilton there. What's, when you, what is it, Burlington Street? That road that almost terrorizes your car every time you drive it? And while the road isn't easy, the benefits of walking the narrow way are the most beautiful. As you listen to the promises that Jesus gave us about those who end this path, you will be comforted, you will be satisfied, you will inherit the earth. All the blessings of the Beatitudes will be yours. But on this path, you will face much difficulty. The wide road is the opposite. You won't face much difficulty as you walk a beautifully paved and easy-to-walk road. But the end result is terrible. The narrow road is strict, but it's also hard. That's the other word here. Hard. The way is hard that leads to life, meaning it's compressed, it's crowded, it's oppressive, it's afflicting, it's not easy. And as a result, those who find it are few, because to enter it means you opt out of the mainstream. And who likes to opt out of the mainstream? Most count the cost of such a decision and refuse to do so. So I want you to just listen. This is a matter of life and death. This is an issue of your eternal destiny. 
You are either on the narrow road leading to life, having entered through the narrow gate, or you're on the wide road that leads to destruction. Seriously, which are you? This is a monumentally important decision. Which road are you on? Most of us simply do not take our faith seriously enough. We live in a world where we value the things of the world more than our faith and we simply toy around with our faith. And let me just tell you, you toy with your very soul. Are you comfortable with that? So many are alarmingly and dangerously dangling on the precipice of falling into hell forever. Far too many of us live for this life. And if that's you, you must turn to Jesus. I mean truly turn to Jesus. If you've been messing around with religion but living for the world, it's time for you to be honest with yourself. And you know if this is you. Deep down you know if you love Jesus and you're walking the narrow path desperate to lay down yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him, you know. You know if that's you. But you also know if you're simply toying with faith, living on the broad road while trying to add a little bit of Jesus into your life to make you feel better. You see, if you are a broad road toying around with religion type, the strength, the power of the church is held back by your lukewarmness in our midst. If you're here week in and week out and you are not serious about your faith, we need the seats. I I don't know if you've noticed... We don't have a ton of seats. Don't sign up. Don't take up the seats. Stop signing up for church so that those who are desperate to love the Lord can come and sit in these seats. Could you imagine what our society would look like if all who claim to follow Christ actually followed Christ? I mean, actually followed him, obeying what he commanded, walking the narrow path. So come on. The narrow gate is Jesus. The narrow path is walking the road of repentance and turning from sin and fighting the battle against sin every day and turning to Jesus every single minute of every day, laying down, leaving behind every weight that hinders you as you try to move in his direction. But again, if faith is just a game to you, if it's some half-hearted addition to your life, know this, you're on the broad road headed for destruction and I plead with you to either give yourself totally to Jesus Or give up your seats on Sundays. And listen, if you give up your seat on Sundays, you can save yourself 10%. Or 2%, or however much you give. You can save that by just staying home. Choose this day whom you will serve. How long will you vacillate between two masters? How long will you limp between two opinions? My hope and prayer is that you keep signing up because you have devoted yourself fully and completely to the Lord, that you are truly devoted to taking up your cross and following Christ. And I mean truly devoted to taking up your cross and following Christ. And that you can enjoy the future fruits of eternal life with him now in this time. But if you count the cost and you decide against it, I cannot express the grief that my heart and my soul feels for you. I cannot express and I cannot grasp how deeply darkened, deluded, and foolish such a decision is to choose the wide road knowing what awaits. Now in closing, as an encouragement to those who are on the narrow road, but who consistently fall while walking the narrow road, which is most of us. Let me end with an encouragement to you from the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said this, Failure on the road does not mean that one has gone back onto the broad way. You can, and often do, fall on the narrow road. But if you realize that you have done so, and immediately confess and acknowledge your sin... Our Lord is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness as you keep walking forward on the road. So, in the words of Deuteronomy, in the words of our Lord, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. 
Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the difficult words of Scripture. We praise you and thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ minces no words, but strongly urges each and every one of us to count the cost, to enter in by the narrow gate, and to walk the narrow road that leads to life. And I pray right now that you would press on us the joys and the delights of A, walking on the road knowing that we have you walking with us, and B, knowing that the end of that road is heaven and eternity with you. And I pray that somehow, some way, you would open us up to see the joys that await all of us who walk the narrow road in service to you. I pray that you would give us the fortitude. I pray that you would give us the courage. I pray that you would give us measures of the Holy Spirit to to teach us what to say when things need to be said, to have the strength to stand up when we need to stand up. I pray for your assistance for every one of us who desire to devote ourselves to walking the narrow road because it's not going to be easy. And I pray that you would help us to be unified, to be together, to be supportive, to be, um, to be able to, to lean on one another as we walk this road together. And who knows, as we sing and sing hymns like the apostles did in prison together. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.